guys, good morning. We are, uh, we are in week two of questions you never thought you could ask in church. Last week, the volume of questions that came in was so great I couldn't get to them all. And so what we're going to be doing today is beginning by hitting nine or ten of these questions that I didn't have time to address last week. But you can see the phone number is on the screen because we are taking new questions this morning as well. For those of you who are new to this, this is how it works. We invite you right now to take out your cell phone, and any question you have on God, theology, life, the Bible, Christianity, Christian history, the church, fellowship of faith, we invite you to text it into this number, 815-314-0363. Again, 815-314-0-F-O-F. I will get them anonymously. I will get them in real time. And I will do the best job I can to answer them as forthrightly and honestly as I can right here on the spot. So while you're getting warmed up on that and getting those questions in, let's bat a little cleanup. Last week, someone texted in, what does the Bible speak to being married to an abusive spouse? You know, the Bible does not actually explicitly speak to that situation. The Bible speaks a lot to being married to a fool. I think of Proverbs. I think of the story of, 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 of Nabal and Abigail. And, and I think of many other instances as well. But the Bible does speak to the issue in broader ways. The Bible has some of the harshest judgment to speak against those who inflict violence or cruelty on another human being. The Bible calls spouses to sacrifice themselves and put the other first and to take that other person in the relationship and lift them up and not step on them and trample them down. So the Bible does speak to this issue in broader terms. I want to move out of the theoretical, however, and speak to you personally. Whoever you are, if you texted this question in, if this isn't just coming out of a mental exercise, but is coming out of something that you currently are suffering or living in, let's take the conversation offline, like after church today. Come and find me. Let's just chat discreetly and privately and talk about what it means to get you safe, talk about what it means to process this together, and talk about what steps could look like and, and um, what God wants for you in that, okay? Thank you for asking. Let's move to this. Is it okay if I believe in ghosts? Can they exist? Um, yeah, it is okay if you believe in ghosts. And they certainly can exist. I think of 1 Samuel 28, where, where the prophet Samuel, long past dead, is, is brought up by a medium and appears. And the Bible literally calls him a ghost. Um, what do you do with that? I'm not saying that every bump in the night and every creak you hear in your house is a spirit. And I certainly wouldn't go looking for them behind every bush in trying to resurrect spirits of the dead. The Bible has some not-so-nice things to say about that. But is there a spirit world of some kind and some variety out there? The Bible seems to say yes. How about this? Is it selfish to pray for yourself? It can be. How about this? <laughs> What's next for FOF? Thank you for asking. 
You know, at one level, there's a lot of motions or a lot of plays in motion right now that are better to speak about after the fact than mid-game. But let me just share briefly what, what, what our board and our leadership has been wrestling on. We know that one of our big next steps here at FOF is children's ministry. Right now, we are not running summer children's ministries. Right now, we are unable to accommodate infants. Right now, we are not well-equipped to do special needs. And right now, quite honestly, our children's ministry is busting at the seams and is out of space. We know that all of this has to be addressed, especially in our suburban context, as we want to reach out to young families and give them the best worship experience and best spiritually formative experience for parents and child alike. So this is all in the works. Other things that are happening right now is that we know we're out of space in other ways. Workspace, office space, classroom space, meeting space, group space, Wednesday night ministry space, and even during the school year, especially at 9 a.m., worship space. We are in the process of speaking with architects and getting master designs put together to see what multi-phase property expansions would look like um, that we can start to, to engage in as, as God is blessing us and we want to continue to bless the community more. Above all of this, there is this Acts 2 drive that we want to be. Disciples, people who look like the biblical model of an Acts 2 disciple, growing in our faith, each of us individually in deeper way and hearing God's call. And so, so many formative things are in the works leading to that. But one key piece that we know is missing for fellowship of faith is our footprint on our community. We've joked around here in the past that FOF is the best kept secret in McHenry. People just don't know that were here. And while nothing will ever replace the importance and the primacy of word of mouth witnessing and inviting, we know that our visibility as a church is lacking and so have plans as well to do frontage facelifts and green space and signage expansions and things like that just to get our passive evangelism footprint better as a church. That's just a taste of things coming up. But as this develops, especially June 21st is the date I want you to mark as, as the board finalizes some plans, we'll be in contact with you probably late summer with some very tangible marks that we're trying to hit over the next one, two, three, and five years. So good stuff's awaiting on that, and I'm glad you asked. How about this? My grandma keeps telling me that Jesus is coming soon, which I don't doubt but I'm actually scared that I won't fulfill everything I won't in life that I work for. Understand we take these texts word for word and try to interpret. Is that wrong to think that I want to live my life and just go to heaven? You know, at some level, I would argue all of us should be scared that when Jesus comes, we won't fulfill everything in life that we hope to, or more importantly, that he hopes us to. I've just got word for you now. You're not going to fulfill everything in life before Jesus comes again or before death meets us that God wants us to do. That isn't an excuse to resignation, to throw up our hands and go, oh, what's the point? No, it should be a sober warning to each of us that there is an imminent call on each of our lives that God has a plan and purpose for you and it matters, that it's not superfluous, and to not take it seriously is to miss out on what he is trying to do through you in this world. And that has ripple effect. So if there is an uneasiness about that, let that generate you to action. 
not let you be paralyzed in fear that God is going to strike you down. No, God is gracious and his forgiveness abounds. But don't hide behind that to miss the calling God has on your life. And as far as the last part, is it wrong to just want to live your life and go to heaven? Hey, we've all been there. I totally get it. But yeah, it is. Okay, so evolution is everywhere. How can kids today feel okay accepting creationism when so many educators will not accept another viewpoint? You know, it really kind of comes down to this. Telling your kids over and over again that creationism is true and evolution is not is simply not going to do it. It might work when they're five, it might work when they're seven, it might even work when they're ten, but the point is going to come in their education and in their rational thinking about this world where they are going to have to deal with evolution seriously. And if creationism is true, that means you as a parent need to be able to explain intelligently why you believe it, how evolution may or may not fit within the creationist worldview and what it is we believe in why. Educate yourselves. Understand it yourselves. And be all open and honest and vulnerable and wise as you try to teach your kids rather than leaving them to, I hope they believe it. I hope they believe it. I hope. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And if you'd like to dig into this even more, um, there's a couple of us on staff who just love these kinds of studies and, and, have, and have kind of delved deeply into some of this. Come talk to me. Love to point you to some resources that might help you along the way. Here's one. Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah, and the book attributed to his name is presumed to have been written between roughly 300 and 100 B.C., all true. Clearly, this scripture was available to Jews and Christians during the pre- and early Christian era. So, is the book of Enoch really one of the lost books of the Bible what are your thoughts on its content? Um, no, it's not a lost book of the Bible, but here's why I answer it that way. It's never been lost. Just because it's a new discovery to you doesn't mean other people didn't know about it. In fact, both Second Peter and Jude quote the book of Enoch. So clearly, even the biblical witness is, has drawn inspiration or insight from what you are calling a lost book. There are all kinds of books out there that are not part of the Bible that the pre- and early Christians knew about. They just didn't view them as the inspired word of God. For example, there's the Greek pagan poet Menander, who's quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Interesting. And you see this kind of thing happen all over the place. If you want to read Enoch someday, come talk to me. I have it. It is really the most mind-numbing, bleed-out-your-eyes, boring thing you'll ever engage in. But uh, rock on if that does it for you. And it does have some pretty incredible insights for how people thought about messianic expectation in Jesus' day. Great question. How about this? Pastor. I've been struggling with feeling closeness and having a relationship with God. I'd like to blame it on my mental illness, but that would not be totally true. Somewhat, but not completely. I find I don't pray enough, certainly not daily. I feel so disconnected. I don't question my love and belief in God, but he's just not a focal point 
in my life. Haven't been going to church. I don't even feel close to him at church. Next slide, please. Is this something rather normal for people at times, or are my sins getting in the way? At times I question whether God really does forgive all my sins, especially those I deem really bad. You know, I don't know the nature of your mental illness or of the experiences that you've had in your life, but from this last section, something just says to me that you may be struggling with some very crushing guilt. Something says to me that maybe concomitantly with that or separately from that, you may also be struggling with despair, depression, and other kinds of darkness in your life. So let me just begin by assuring you of some of the promises of God. From John 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. That is a promise of God to you. That as dark as it may be, the darkness, no matter how deep, cannot overcome the brilliant light of God, even if you don't see it, sense it, or feel it shining in your life at this moment. Hold on to that truth. This is the promise of God, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, God's faithful, which means he's reliable, which means he'll do what he says he does, and this is what he says he'll do. He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us of, here's the word, all unrighteousness. That no matter what your past track record might be, no matter what kind of sin is in your life, and I bet it's dark, and I bet it's bad, it is not so beyond the faithfulness of God and the forgiveness he offers you. If those sins are in your life, repent of them. Confess them to God and turn to him in them. Even if it's again and again and again, and trust that he's faithful and he has forgiven you. And is the struggle that you have rather normal? Or are your sins getting in the way? The answer unequivocally always in this situation with everyone is yes. It is normal. Most, if not all of us, have been there. And your sins are getting in the way. It sounds like you have fallen out of daily practice, daily attention, and regular intentional time spent with God. There's consequence to that. Don't run from him anymore. Get connected even though you don't feel like it. Talk to him even though you don't want to. Force yourself into community even though you would rather hide in isolation. This stuff matters. It's why God commands us to do it. And while it won't erase your mental illness or make all your problems go away, it'll certainly help in the process. So I want to thank you for your vulnerability in that and just opening your own soul into that. And that's last week. So, let's see what's coming today. I know I am a Christian and a believer. How do I know if I have a personal relationship with God? If you are truly a Christian and if you are truly a believer, 
You do have a relationship with God. In fact, all of us have a relationship with God. Even those who are not Christians and who are not believers still stand in some kind of relation to God, even if that relationship is estranged. So the real question is this. How do I have a good relationship with God? Or how do I have a better relationship with God? And I found... To boil it down simply, it's like having a relationship with anyone else. If you want a good relationship with someone, you've got to spend time with them. It's got to go beyond just thinking about them. You've got to actually spend time with them, interacting stuff with them, doing stuff with them, sharing life experiences with them. I encourage you, do that with God. Converse with him. Talk to him. Listen to him. Spend time in his presence. Do what you do to the people who are important in your life. Thank them. Show them gratitude. Love them. Serve them. Put them at a place of primacy in your life. Do the same with God. Take those daily practices that we do with those or that we should do with those who are so dear and important to us and foster them more and more with the living God. And I think in the process, intimacy, connection, All that that word relationship entails will come alive more and more for you and make your belief less and less stale as simply a set of propositions. How about this? If you could be any animal, what would it be? Believe it or not, I've thought extensively about this. And uh, I'm undecided. Hawk, wolf, and bear are always at the top of the list just because they're so cool. Am I right? Am I right? But the platypus has a uniqueness that just can't be undermined, that I like what it's bringing to this world. But sometimes I look for those animals that simply do not have predators or poachers in this world, no matter how ugly, fluffy, or misshapen they might be, and those kind of rank high in my list as well. So hopefully that helped. How does the book of Revelation inform your ministry and leadership? Revelation is actually my favorite book of the Bible. And if we could do nothing at FOF, then spend 80% of our time in the book of Revelation, I would die happy. Um, I love this book. I think it's misunderstood. But let me tell you how it informs ministry and leadership here. The primary message of Revelation is not a prediction of the way that future events are going to fall out. The primary message of the book of Revelation is a call to persevere in the midst of suffering right now and right here, to hang in there. And not just hang in there because it's the right thing to do, to hang in there because we know what our hope is, and that hope shapes everything. When I picture the risen Christ and all his glory and power and array and what that will mean for his kingdom on that earth, it gets inside me. And it's that focal point that's supposed to shape everything we do as believers. I hope it does the same for you as well. All right, how about this? If God knows already that some people will perish... Why did he create them? And most importantly, or more importantly, why does it appear as if he still pursues them? It kind of feels like a mixed bag, right? Like, just don't 
make me to begin with? And at some level, it's an unanswerable question for me. But there's some analogies that I've found helpful and insights along the way that have helped frame it for me as well. And I think of my own kids. I have three. Two of them were very intentional acts. I won't tell you which was that. (laughs) Which means my wife and I intentionally sought to bring children into the world. And yet we knew this, with certainty, that they will suffer. We knew this, that they will die. Why did we bring them into this world? Because our love for them and our belief in life and our hope that even in the face of terrible loss overrid something for us. And I kind of sense it's the same for God as well. I know the analogy falls down at some point. All do. But I see a God who is willing to risk in the most crazy outlandish kinds of ways despite knowing what some of our destiny might be despite knowing how we'll suffer. But he loves his creation and he loves to create anyway so much that to him it has more value and more importance despite the consequence. And you know, I wouldn't say it is just a fact that God appears to pursue them. I think God does vigorously. And this is paradoxical to be sure Because as much as God knows what's going to happen, he still gives people every chance, every way. God's foreknowledge does not necessarily foreordain. Sometimes it might, but it isn't always a guarantee. And let that just kind of circle around and swirl in there as well. Okay, follow-up. Can we do another series on Revelation? You bet. All right, how about this? I find myself asking um, for forgiveness a few times a day. It bothers me because sometimes it's the same sin. I hear you. And all I can say is that from my experience in my own life and in counseling and ministering to others, so many of us carry around the guilt of a sin that we've confessed for years to come. So if it is continuing to bother you, continue to confess it. Continue to bring it to God daily. Not because it remains unforgiven, because it's your time to talk with God and share with him and draw on his assurance that he can give you that, Lord, I'm still struggling with this even though I know I'm forgiven, despite the fact I feel I am not. But, Lord, I'm clinging to you today one more time that your grace is enough, that your blood covers my sin, and I am forgiven in your name. It's okay to keep doing it that way. But now let me go on another path, speaking from someone who tends to flirt with OCD. Sometimes I have actually found that confession and prayer when done again and again and again for the same thing, is not so much the exercise of faith, but a testimony to the lack of it. That your 
prayer or your confession is a way of trying to control the situation or manipulate God rather than stepping back and saying, I've confessed it. He's forgiven me. I'll trust it. Even though I want to go through my routine again. Now, for most of you, that's not going to resonate. But for the 10% of you out here who are OCD like me, you know exactly what I mean. How about this? Since Jesus has always been and continues to be, then what other than his restrictive earthly shell did he sacrifice? Following the question here, the early church struggled with this. And they wrestled in all kinds of ways, and it actually speaks into the Trinitarian concept that they came up with. But you know what they kind of settled on with this was this. That when Jesus died, it affected him fully. Not just a body. Not just an earthly shell. But on that Good Friday, God did, in fact, die that day. Does that mean the Father died? No. Does that mean the Spirit died? No. But that Jesus, who is fully God, died that day. That as a human, he experienced the full weight of suffering pressure, temptation, punishment, alienation from God, suffering, pain, and death. But that is God. It was in much way the same. It was in much way the same. Experiencing what it is to give of himself for a creation that hates him what it is to be mocked despite the fact of great love. See, if you believe that God loves you, it means that God's heart can be broken. And any of you who have experienced heartbreak know that it transcends an earthly shell. Yeah, God suffered deeply that Good Friday. And for Jesus, it was more than just an earthly shell. How about this? Do things like creation versus evolution and the age of the earth or universe have to be mutually exclusive? I'm going to underline the word have to be. No, they don't have to be. But they can be. See, it's a more nuanced answer than this. Within creation and within evolutionary debates, there are so many nuances and so many, many points of travel at play. And some can work very compatibly. Others don't. And you're left having to choose what you believe is true and false and select your worldview. So if you'd like to get more specific on that, I'll let you. But for now, I've got to kind of leave it as it is. How about this? A little bit longer on this one. Bear with me. In Mark chapter 5, Gospel of Mark, there is a man who is possessed by a demon. His name is Legion. This demon asks Jesus to allow him and or them to go into a bunch of pigs. Jesus grants this request. 
What I want to know is why Jesus would give anything to a demon, a demon, his adversary from the beginning of time, and doesn't have hope, salvation, or anything else. Why would he allow a demon to even make a request? And let's face it, it sucks for the pigs, right? Why does Jesus do this? At some level, I don't know. Because there's times when you see Jesus interacting with the demons that he doesn't allow them to speak, that he shuts them up immediately, that he mutes them and drives them out, but not always the case. You know, there's all kinds of subtext that's happening in this story. The fact that they go into, into pigs, which is an unclean animal, and all the connotations that have. The fact that they go into the sea, and that the sea in Jewish thought was, was synonymous with the abyss, and so that they get plunged into the, the literal image of what stands for hell. You know, has all this kind of, of, of significance as well. The fact that he does it in Gentile country. People who are viewed as unclean, and Jesus takes them out of those who are unclean and sends them into this as well. But to your question, why does he even entertain it to begin with? Did he know him from the other side of eternity? He was like, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Let's catch up. Was it an object lesson for his disciple? Was it something that he was meant to communicate and trying to, to allow those who were witnessing it to see? All of these are viable suggestions, but it doesn't really answer it for us. All we really know is that he did, and that is way, way cool and interesting. I'll leave it at that. Let's see. What else do we have here today? Oh, I think I just deleted something. Okay. In reference to communion, why as Lutherans do we take it literally that the bread and wine is we eat, and drink is also his physical body and blood. Jesus spoke in metaphors all the time. I'm the bread of, uh, it says I'm the bread of wine, but it's I'm the bread of life. I am the vine. I am the gate, etc. We know he physically wasn't any of these things. Why would this be any different, and what's wrong with believing it's representative of his body broken and blood poured out on the cross and fulfilling of the new covenant. You know, the simple answer is it could be metaphorical. Jesus does speak in metaphors all the time. We talk about him as the vine and no one thinks he's a green leafy plant, right? At the same time, sometimes Jesus speaks literally. And what he says is kind of what he means in the plainest reading of the text. And so that means every time Jesus speaks, it has to be determined individually. The best practices of interpretation of language and biblical interpretation have to be applied to try to root it out, and I will encourage you today or maybe disillusion you by saying, this is a question that has divided Christians historically. Some have seen Jesus in, in the most literal way speaking of a literal presence in that bread and wine. Others have taken it metaphorically. What you're going to have to do is this. Not just look at the words of Jesus, but also the words of Paul. May I suggest 1 Corinthians 11 to you in the surrounding context as well. 
And then what you'll have to do is take how the early church viewed it, those earliest followers of Jesus, letting that help guide the way. But what you'll have to do more than that is step back and look at your world view and ask yourself, are you rejecting a literal presence just because it seems foolish and doesn't make sense in a scientifically progressed age? Or is it for interpretive reasons instead? And after you've done all that, I want to invite you to text me in and let's start walking through the details and I'll help steer you along the way. It's Communion Fest. What's FOF's theological view on communion? We do it every other week. So do we view it as integral or important? If yes, why don't we do it more often? If no, why do we do it at all? We commune every week, and we actually want to, view, we actually want to commune every day. See, something tells me that your definition of communion is a couple trays of wine and a couple wafers of bread that we get to have on occasion. But do you know what this is right now? It's communion. When we're in the coffee house together after a service and we're sharing life together, do you know what that's called? Communion. When we're gathering in each other's homes, praying for each other, seeking God together, studying his word together, do you know what that's called? Communion. When our softball team is on the field, 3-0, and they won last Monday. And they're sharing life together and laughing and striving together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know what that's called? Communion. Where two or three are gathered together in Jesus' name, there he will be. In community with us as we are in community with each other. And this meal that we share simply becomes a tangible expression of the deeper reality that is there. What's something... What's something you wish you would have known before you were married? You know, let me introduce everyone to my wife, Tina. She's sitting here in the second row. I wish I would have known how amazing a human being this was. so that I wouldn't take her for granted and glory in her more fully? Great, great question. I talk to God and Jesus on my morning walks. Does that count as praying? Yeah, it absolutely does. But can I just caution you? Don't make praying a quota-based conversation. All of us need to put disciplines in our life. Did I do it or didn't I? And they serve a purpose. But if your conversational life with God does not go beyond, did I get it in today? You are missing the fullness of what a deep, enriching relationship with him can be. So, of course, it counts, but don't let it stay there. Talk to him in all other kinds of more intentional and formal ways as well.
A couple more. Why is Sunday the main day for church? Remember Revelation? Remember the question, how does it inform our ministry? Rock on. Because it is the first attestation in the early church where it says the believers stopped gathering on the Sabbath and instead started gathering on the first day of the week. And the reason why is this. Because it is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's significant because of this. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, it's not just some dead guy coming back to life as awesome as that happens to be. It is nothing short of the start of the new age that God had promised through the prophetic witness of long ago that we stand in a new era and a new age from what existed before that. That God's kingdom has come and that shapes everything. So as much as the Old Testament law, including the Sabbath, was important, it was meant to lead us to something greater, which is the new age in Christ, which dawned with his resurrection, and that is why we gather on Sunday. And from completely a different angle, what is the right answer when it comes to LGBTQ? I think the right answer comes down to this. Love them like Jesus did. Love them like Jesus did. And mine from that answer all the intricacies of what love in Jesus' mind means as opposed to our distorted use of the term love today. Love them like Jesus did. And finally, do you think there's any possible chance that our merciful Father would at the end of time forgive and save all people? I just cannot fathom eternal suffering for any created being, even someone as evil as Hitler. Forgiveness of the unrepentant uh, non-believer seems like the ultimate act of love. You know, when we talk about the word possibility, there is some level at which I approach this going, all things are possible with God, and who knows how he'll surprise us at the end of the days. The struggle I simply have with it is that the Bible doesn't seem to speak that way. The Bible seems to speak clearly that sadly, even when God's forgiveness is offered out, there are still people who will not choose that way. I would think about people who suffer in hell eternally, not so much as being outside the pale of God's forgiveness, because this is true, Jesus died for them too. They simply choose to reject it even if it means agony. They simply choose to reject it. And can I put it this way? Stay in hell rather than repent and receive God's mercy that he continues to offer every step along the way. How whacked out is that? And that, by the way, too, also comes from the book of Revelation. We're out of time. And there's some questions that have been texted in.
that remain. Good news. I'll back clean up next week. And open texting will be going live again as well. 